You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello, everyone, and welcome. The History of the Great War, Episode 95. This will be our seventh episode, detailing the events of the Battle of the Somme, and it will be our fourth, detailing the events of July 1st specifically, in 1916. In the first three episodes, we discussed little but complete failures for the British, as they tried to move forward against the German defenses. This week, in our last episode on this day, we will discuss by far the most successful of the attacks on July 1st, In fact, the attacks that we will discuss today will capture more German territory than our last three episodes combined, by a pretty wide margin. We will start our discussion with the British 13th Corps, the southernmost of the British units, where the British attack met up with the French. The French did a fine job in their own attack as well, and they will occupy the final part of this episode. Which is something we need to have a discussion about. I need to throw this out right now. Finding good, detailed English sources for the French attacks on July the 1st is a bit of a challenge. Because of this fact, you will note that our discussion of the French, which gained more ground than the British, is very short and not the most detailed. One thing to keep in mind, while I'm sure you curse at me for my brief overview of their efforts, is that this attack is just a small footnote on the French in their larger story of the war. Just one attack in four years of attacks. July 1st was not the biggest, it was not the most successful, it was not the most costly, and really, there's just nothing to make it stand out from all of the other French efforts. They attacked, they did okay, they achieved some objectives, and then their attack ended. The best way for me to illustrate this is looking at the official histories of the war. After the war, the countries involved went to huge efforts to compile and publish official histories of their country's actions. Generally, these are extremely lengthy, spanning over many, many volumes. Unfortunately, I've only been able to get my hands on the official records of the Australian and Austro-Hungarian Empire. If anybody knows how I can get a digital copy of any of the others, please let me know. Anyway, in the British official history, which I think is about 20 volumes, There's a full six chapters dedicated to the events of July 1st, 1916, at least according to one of my sources, since I've not had a good look at it. 
On the French side, in an official history that is something like 103 volumes, a whole bookshelf in and of itself, there's about five pages discussing the events of July 1st. In newer sources, the French sector of the front often barely gets a mentioned. In what is probably my best source on French actions, Pyrrhic Victory by Robert A. Doughty, which is strictly dedicated to French actions during the war, it has just a few pages on these attacks and really just a small piece of a chapter on the sum as a whole. So that's the story of why the British get three and a half episodes, and the French only get a half. Something to keep in mind when we get there in about 15 minutes. We start today with the British 13th Corps, which as I mentioned was the furthest south of all of the British units. The 18th Division would be on its left-hand side, or to the north, and they would try to advance into the small village of Kanoi, then continue past him through a small set of German positions until finally they would take the Montembon Alley Trench, which was behind and to the north of the village of Montembon itself. There they would try to fortify their positions and hold it. On the right and to the south, the 30th Division would move forward to capture the village of Montembon itself before pushing beyond it to the next set of German lines, where they too would fortify and hold their positions. They were looking up at the German defenses on the Pogier Ridge from in front of Montauban, a village on that ridge that had a pretty good view. The German defenses in this area had never been as well built up or constructed as they were further to the north, and this would greatly benefit the British attack. Another thing that would greatly assist the infantry would be the efforts of the British artillery. On this part of the front, the British artillery did an amazing job of preparing the German positions for the infantry attack. A good portion of the wire was cut all along the 13th Corps' front, and in front of the 30th Division on the right, almost all of it had been taken care of. There had also been enough focus on the German front lines, which meant that a good portion of the machine guns had been disabled. In fact, many of the German positions all along the 13th Corps' front had been almost completely destroyed, or at least caved in enough to make them inhospitable. At the center of the objectives, though, was the village of Montembon, and it had been completely reduced to rubble. Now, unlike in other villages that we have discussed further north, this destruction was actually combined with the destruction of the German front line as a whole, and this was beneficial and didn't just make the rubble better places for the Germans to hide their troops. The final piece of the artillery puzzle was the focus on the German artillery in the form of counter-battery fire. Both the 13th Corps and the French put a huge priority on counter-battery fire, and this resulted in the damaging or disabling of a large number of German artillery batteries. This would prevent many from being able to properly participate in the defense, and as we have discussed all along, this would be a huge advantage for the British. The French artillery would also be assisting when the attack started, at least on the far right of the British attack, as they laid down their own barrage for their own artillery, and it bled into the German lines to their left. Finally, when the infantry did go forward, the creeping barrage on this section of the front actually worked. In this area, it actually shielded the infantry correctly, instead of running away from them and leaving them high and dry. On the 18th Division's front, just like all the points along the line, there would be men who would have to stay behind in the front line when the attack started, for one reason or another. And one of these men was Private Coode of the East Kent Regiment, 55th Brigade, 18th Division. He would take the time later to write about what it was like when the other men went forward. This must be the beginning of the end, 
7.22 a.m. Every gun for eight minutes gave off their best, and the din was terrific. Punctual to time, 7.28 a.m., two minutes before the line advances, Captain Neville, 8th East Surrey's, kicks off the football that is to take the boys across to Jerry. Now, although the line right and left have moved, I am too busy to take in the surroundings other than on our immediate front. East Surrey's and Queen's go over singing and shouting, and the ball is punted from one to another. This act of throwing or kicking a football in front of the infantry was something that was done by a few different British units. It was great for morale, and I'm sure that the men enjoyed it, even if they were chasing the ball into great danger. For the East Surrey regiments in the Queen's Own, their chance of making it across no man's land and into the German line was much higher than probably anywhere else. In fact, the men of the 18th Division got to the 1st German line and were able to capture it pretty quickly. After this first step was taken, they continued to move forward, pushing through up to a thousand yards behind the front in just a few hours. As they advanced further, the resistance, of course, got stronger. The first problem was that the German fire was coming in on them heavily from the north, especially in the far left side of the 18th Division, where they were still feeling the follow-on effects of all the failures to their north. The second problem was simply one of a dying impetus of the attack. As the men got tired and further away from their start lines, the attack began to slow, and this was especially true in areas where they ran into some of the stronger and more intact German positions. At this point, it was time for the officers to step forward and come into their own. It was entirely their responsibility to identify what was happening and then find a way to continue to push the men forward and onto their next objective as quickly as possible. This is exactly what Lieutenant Colonel Alfred Irwin of the East Surrey Regiment 55th Brigade 18th Division did when he found himself at the front with an attack that was beginning to slow. When the impetus died down, I thought that this was the moment and I might be of some use. I went in and picked up all the chaps I could and went over the parapet by myself, stood well out in the open and said, come on, come on, come on. They all came on quite smoothly. They didn't know what to do after they'd taken their first objective, but I think I acted properly, but I don't really know. It was a difficult job to know what a commanding officer should do or shouldn't do. The critical piece for all the British efforts, though, and the only thing that let the efforts of officers like Lieutenant Colonel Irwin be successful, was the fact that the first sets of infantry were not completely cut off, like we've talked about so far. Unlike to the north, there was a constant stream of reinforcing units who were able to push forward, which allowed them to add their weight and their energy at critical moments, keeping it all going far longer than it otherwise would have. Because of all these successes, the 18th Division's major objectives were somewhat easily taken during the day. They were also able to firmly consolidate all of their new positions and linked up with men on the 7th Division on their left and the 30th Division on their right, and they were not going to be pushed back. The 18th had lost some men, as expected in any attack, but for the most part, the 18th attacks went off about as perfectly as could be hoped, and they would be the first division to achieve their objectives for July 1st, and there would be many more to the south. (laughs) 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. When the 30th Division went forward, they encountered both machine gun and artillery fire, but here it was a mere fraction of what other British units had experienced on other parts of the front. On the left, the 22nd Brigade quickly advanced to the first set of German trenches, and Private Albert Andrews of the Manchester Regiment 21st Brigade 30th Division would be one of those men in the first few units to go forward. Here is him describing what happened when he and his unit got to the German positions. We both bombed the dugout and turned round to go along the trench, when three fine Germans came running towards us with their hands up. They were about 20 yards away. We both fired and two fell. My mate saying as we let go, that's for my brother in the Dardanelles. And as he fired again and the third German fell, that's for my winter in the trenches. We walked up to them and one moved. My mate kicked him and pushed his bayonet into him. That finished him. This kind of thing was going along all along the front. No Germans being spared. Wounded were killed by us all. We hadn't exactly been told no prisoners, but we were given to understand that that is not what was wanted. On the right, the 90th Brigade was headed directly towards Montembal. Before they got to the village, they would have to advance up a slope that the village sat on top of. Similar arrangements had doomed so many of the other British attacks already on July the 1st. As they started their advance, the German defense was so weak that not only was the advance able to easily continue, but before the planned smokescreen came down, Private Pat Kennedy of the 18th Battalion, Manchester Regiment, 90th Brigade, 30th Division, had time to take a gander over to his right, and there he could see the French were also advancing. As we were going over, I could see the French troops advancing on our right, it was a splendid sight to see them in their colored uniforms and long bayonets. They advanced in short, sharp rushes, and they seemed to make very, very good progress. Their artillery was giving them plenty of support, and as they vanished in the distance, I turned around to some of my comrades and said, They are doing very well, very well indeed. And they did, you know. As the 90th Brigade continued to advance towards the village, they found themselves covered in a dense smoke screen, which I'm sure was somewhat comforting, even if it was a bit confusing to try and find their way. 
In a matter of minutes, the attack had started, succeeded, and the village was already in British hands. Again, it was the artillery that had been the heroes of the day. There had been a good amount of work put into sighting our machine guns in the village and then fortifying those positions by the Germans, but the artillery had been able to neutralize almost all of them, rendering the defense without its most important piece, the machine guns. Another remarkable occurrence in this area of the front was the fact that the artillery was actually in some kind of communication with the infantry. This allowed the British to actually use both the communication links and the observation posts that they had so carefully laid out to actually coordinate the artillery and infantry in a way that had not been possible on other areas of the front. Although I guess to be fair, the other areas had not advanced far enough to make it really necessary. That's a separate issue. Here is Lieutenant William Bloor of the Royal Field Artillery discussing what happened after the attack started and it started to succeed. Received news at last from observation post. Attack going okay. First, second, third lines taken with few casualties. At 9.56am, lifted from Montbas and put up a barrage on the southeast side of the village to check in any reinforcements coming up. Batteries in the rear of us who have have to advance first are now limbering up and trotting forward past our guns. Everything is going top hole. Awfully bucked. At 10.10am, received word from OP. Infantry has taken Glotz Alley and is now entering Montembaugh. At 11 a.m., the 90th Brigade had completely captured the village, had pushed past it, and had captured all of their objectives in the next set of German lines. They then tried their best to both link up and build up the defenses of the shell holes. Everybody along the line knew that the Germans would be coming at some point. The only question was how long it would take for them to organize the attack. The Germans simply were trying to organize an attack at all, and this was definitely easier said than done in this case. In other areas of the front, just small bits of German positions had been taken, and this allowed the Germans to have a good base of operations and solid positions from which to organize and launch their counterattacks. In this area, with so much of their first line taken, even the second sets of many positions taken already, the German situation was far different. Here is Jeremy Sheldon from the German Army on the Somme to explain. Quote, Already a sense of desperation was entering into the way the defense was being conducted. The coming days would provide innumerable examples of formations and units being broken up and rushed forward, so that gaps in the line could be plugged somehow, regardless of the consequences for the individuals or the units involved. Sheldon then goes on into more detail about what happened as the Germans tried to move units forward and pushed them to retake the positions that they had lost. Quote, Men of the Bavarian Reserve Infantry Regiment 6, who were spread out in a large arc from southwest of Montbon to Curlot, they had been unfortunate enough to have been rushed into the frontline positions of the 12th Infantry Division in a piecemeal, uncoordinated manner to replace the enormous losses suffered by the forward companies of Infantry Regiments 62 and 63 during the bombardment. Instead of being deployed as a single entity, the 12 companies were split up and initially put under the command of officers from the two Prussian regiments in front of them. This meant that there were no clear orders, chain of command, communication, rationing, or ammunition supply. End quote. When the attacks did come, even though they were disorganized, even though they were costly, they were still real danger for the British units. Here's Private Pat Kennedy again. 
When you saw the Germans coming to you with fixed bayonets, the old sergeant, who had been out since Mons, said to me, By God, Pat, if they get any nearer, we'll have to go and meet them with the bayonet. I thought, right, I've got a round in my breech. In case I miss with the bayonet, I can shoot him. Just pull the trigger, catch him that way. But they got very near on top of us, a few feet away from us, and they were coming full pelt, yelling at the top of their voices. It's a nasty feeling to think of these big Germans, all picked men. They were regular troops, done years and years of conscript service. But really, they were on a level with us, because it was their first field action that they were in, I think. All of the counterattacks were failures, and the British were able to beat back all of them through a combination of artillery shells, machine gun bullets, and some steady nerves, like Private Pat Kennedy. Overall, the 30th Division would achieve all of its objectives for July 1st, while losing the least of any British division. The success of the 13th Corps was huge. It had achieved so many of its objectives for the day, and for these successes, it had had to pay less than 3,000 casualties for both the 30th and 18th Divisions. It's crazy to think that this is about half of some of the divisions to the north, divisions that had achieved far less or even nothing. Before we say goodbye to the British attacks, I have this quote from Lieutenant Colonel Frank Maxwell of the 18th Division. I like it, and I wanted to find a way to include it earlier in this episode, but I couldn't. So I'm doing it now because I can do things like that. Quote, As the reserve battalions moved forward, they were shaken by the sheer horror of the sights that surrounded them. A battlefield in the old days, even though casualties were often far greater, must have been a clean, sweet business compared to one these days. The areas over which it is fought is merely the face of God's lovely earth, wrecked beyond recognition, except, except as a plague of volcanoes. Everything about the thing is unlovely and rather dreadful, and to those who are at all weak in the stomach, very dreadful and altogether unbearable. And there are a great many of whom, at any rate in cold blood, it is intolerable. I have two officers both shaken and now useless, from mere sights, and I suppose there are many of the men that are the same. End quote. The French attacked on the southern end of the Somme front. The area of the front was actually split by the river itself. This arrangement seems positively mad to me. It seems crazy that the British front would not extend all the way to the river, but troop numbers was probably the problem and the French did not seem to have any great difficulties because of the river running through their lines. Also, it's important to note that with how slow and marshy the sides of the river were, they didn't actually attack very close to it. It just wasn't that type of area. There's a pretty wide berth on either side. The French 20th Corps would be positioned north of the river, and they would advance with the British 30th to its north. The hope was that these two units would be able to advance hand in hand, to the south of the river, the 1st Colonial Corps and the 35th Corps would be positioned. We will start with the advance on the north side of the river, where the French went forward at 7.30, and when the whistles blew, the French soldiers jumped out of their trenches, gave a yell, and off they went. This attack was greatly assisted by the artillery, and there was little German resistance in the first positions. When I say little resistance, I mean the first set of trenches were captured in something like 20 minutes and in an hour, the 20th Corps had captured all of their objectives. 
On the German side, they had been hit hard by the artillery. One, fr- one field artillery regiment had 15,000 rounds of French artillery hit their positions before the attack began. And with this fact in mind, it's easy to see how they would be unable to provide any help at the front. As, as it was, small groups of German defenders were able to hold on to a few positions, but those groups often just found themselves bypassed and surrounded. After this happened, it was just a matter of time before the end came. By the middle of the afternoon, even the stoutest German positions had been captured, with everyone inside either killed or captured. To the south of the river, this story was much the same. The French had just completely overwhelmed the German artillery here. The only change on this part of the front was the fact that the attacks did not start until 9.30, instead of the 7.30, like to the north. The French had always wanted to delay the attack until 9.30, and had only agreed to the 7.30 start time for the 20th Corps at the insistence of the British. The 1st Colonial Corps and the 35th Corps had the same type of success, with the first line taken in just 15 minutes. By three hours after the start of the attack, the French had reached their objectives and taken thousands of prisoners with very few casualties of their own. The attack for these two French corps went exactly like the entire attack was supposed to go, but didn't. The German positions had fallen so quickly that they had been unable to even communicate back to the rear what had happened. All that the German officers knew was that their first line positions no longer existed, and they rapidly began to take the only action that they could, preparing the second line as the primary line of resistance. In just a few hours, men had been rushed forward into this line, and when the French reached it, they found it was a much tougher nut to crack. The Germans were able to stop the French attack, even though the units in the line represented just a hodgepodge of units, with everything available thrown in. So why had the French been able to capture all of their objectives, and capture 4,000 prisoners to boot, while sustaining a reasonable number of casualties, when things had went so poorly for the British? Well, part of that answer is the French themselves. The troops had been u- that had been used in this attack were not green troops straight off the boat from Britain, like many of the British units. Many of them had seen action before. They had also properly prioritized their artillery fire onto the correct targets. But part of their success was attributable to the German actions as well. The German units to the south of the river were extremely weak. There were just three divisions to the south of the river to face two entire French army corps. Joffre actually does a pretty good job of describing why the Germans were so weak across from his troops. Quote, The Germans did not believe that the French, just emerging from the Verdun battle, would be capable of starting an offensive on the Somme. They had therefore taken more precautions along the line facing the British, and this accounts for the more violent reactions which took place on their part of the line. If you remember back to earlier episodes, and I mean way earlier, at the beginning of this year, June was around the time that the French were still in a really rough spot at Verdun. The Germans were still attacking, and the French counterattacks had not really started to get going yet. Because of this, the German generals, all the way up to Falkenheim, still believed that the French were on the brink of defeat. This caused him and the other generals to mostly discount the chance of a concerted French effort to the north or to the south of the river, even though they could see some build-up. I don't want to take too much away from the French, though. They had managed to easily reach their objectives on their entire front, advancing one and a half kilometers in some areas, 
when most of the British troops could not take a single yard of ground. It was simply impressive. Next episode, we will dig into the aftermath of the first day of the Battle of the Somme and sort of take a step back and summarize and analyze all the things that have happened so far.